everybody and welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. Conversations with creatives, entrepreneurs, thinkers and dreamers who also happen to be surfers. My name's Immy and I am your host. How are you? How is your lockdown going? Have you been allowed back in the ocean? Actually, at the moment this podcast drops, it's the first day we'll be officially allowed out and I can't wait to see the sea and possibly dip my toes into it. I've missed it so much. I don't know about you, but today I'm very excited to introduce you to my guest. Her name is Natalie Fox, and she's a fascinating surfer who's had an incredible journey. In this episode, she shares her story of joining Sea Shepherd and campaigning in Antarctica, embarking on a life-changing voyage from Plymouth to the Azores Islands, collecting microplastics and analysing data, and how her passion for surfing and nature and the oceans has led her to refocus her studies on sustainability from a scientific point of view. Natalie has created a lifestyle that will inspire many. She's a yoga teacher and a surf instructor and spends the summer months living in her very own reconditioned van. So I hope you enjoy her story. So without further ado, please welcome Natalie Fox. and welcome to the Ocean Riders podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Emmy. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I guess for people who don't know you yet, do you think you could introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us how you consider yourself as an ocean rider? Sure. My name is Natalie Fox. I am a surfer, a surf instructor, a yoga teacher, and I'm also a master's sustainability student studying the intersection between surfing health and ocean health. Wow. Okay, well, this is this is really going to be really exciting because we've got so many subjects to go into, to dive into, and things that we have in common as well, which is, which is really, really nice. So um, I guess maybe we could rewind to the beginning and find out where you grew up. Sure. I grew up in the middle of England in a place called Dudley, but it's close to Stratford-upon-Avon, so very far away from the sea. I didn't have any interaction with the sea until I was about 16 when I went on holiday to Newquay in Cornwall. Hmm. And then, yeah, I went to university and then it was after university that my life kind of changed at that point. I moved back down to Newquay to Cornwall. Wow. (laughs) So what did you say? Did you say indefinitely? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For one summer, it turned out to be off and on for the next 10 years. <laughs> That's brilliant. And I guess, who had the um, most influence when you were growing up? I guess it was that era of having a lot of freedom. And I lived on the outskirts of the village where there was a lot of farms and I had a horse. I had, mm. you know, I was lucky enough to have that freedom to ride my horse around the fields and just disappear. So I think it was spending a lot of time in nature and having the freedom to do so that was biggest childhood memories. (laughs) So would you consider yourself as a sort of adventurous spirit when you were growing up? I guess adventurous and also quite rebellious I would say. I had that nature in me to kind of not want to stay in that village where I grew up to always want to escape. I knew there was something more exciting, more adventurous out there. I was Mm. always trying to get out. (laughs) (laughs) So you studied media or communications at university, is that correct? Yeah, I did media production for five years um, at college and then uni. And my sort of focus was actually horror films. 
Really? <laughs> and <laughs> was looking at Luc Besson films. I don't know if yes. you, you know. <laughs> yeah, I grew up yeah. on them. <laughs> so the ocean was already starting to kind of filter into my consciousness when I was at university and I studied uh, Luc Besson for my dissertation and The Big Blue was a big part of it. Right, yes, it's a very good film. And it's a, especially at that time, it was the, one of the first of its kind to sort of be immersed in the water and for you to discover the underwater world which is amazing yeah so amazing I'd never really considered or thought about or heard about free diving so I was just blown away <laughs> so if we sort of fast forward a few years how did you actually get into Sea Shepherd so the Sea Shepherd volunteering came from surfing actually I was working as a surf coach in Morocco and the International Whaling Commission meeting was taking place down the road in Agadir. So I'm sure a lot of the people that listen to this podcast have surfed in Tawut at Anchor Point, And I was working at Surf Morocco in 2010. So I'd kind of hit a point in surf coaching where there was a mindset to grow up and get a proper job. <laughs> and I'd been a little bit of time out, even though I really loved surf coaching and it had amazing experiences I felt some sort of pressure to go to London and try and work at this media career which didn't happen and I lasted about two weeks in London <laughs> within those weeks I'd started to research a lot about animal rights and specifically cetacean rights and I'd had an email from uh, one of the surf mags with pictures of pilot whales being killed so that's the blood spot in the Faroe Islands. Mm -hmm. I felt really activated by this and I started to send out some emails and think about what I could do to maybe be an activist. And this is quite early days with the internet, not really any social media. I think it was back when MySpace was right. still the prominent <laughs> social media form of communication. But I sent a few emails to surfers for citations because Dave Rastovich had started his active NGO to really speak on behalf of rights and whales and dolphins. Um, I didn't hear anything back, but I did meet a girl on the internet who was up for coming to Morocco with me and coming to protest at wow. the international whaling meeting. So it was back in the day when there was no yeah, Tinder or anything like that. It was a bit weird to meet a stranger off the internet. And <laughs> now it's normal. But we met and she's still a really good friend. And it was an incredible experience. We showed up at the convention center and there was Howie from Surface Visitations and Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd. And I took part in my first protest. So it was, yeah. it was a real eye opener and that kind of point where you go from being apathetic to being an activist is quite a big transitional stage, I would say. So yeah, I just felt like every day I was learning and it was new and quite intense and overwhelming but it was really great because from that point I met one of the captains from Sea Shepherd and then they invited me to go on a boat to the Faroes so a couple of months later I was on a boat heading towards the Faroes to investigate the grind and the pilot whales being killed so that's amazing so that's how you got in but you stayed there for a while I stayed on the boat they tended to do campaigns in Europe because they're based in Australia so that campaign was a couple of weeks I was on the second leg and they told us 
that we couldn't tell anyone what we were doing. So mm-hmm. I didn't tell anyone, what, including my parents, what I was doing. And I sort of sent an email three weeks later saying, oh, by the way, I'm actually, I am on a boat with Sea Shepherd, but don't worry, I'm fine. We did get into a little bit of trouble with the Danish Navy boarding the boat, but it was all okay. And yeah, I think that was when I realised I quite liked the <laughs> thrill of activism. <laughs> well, it definitely chose that the NGO that's probably the most sort of thrilling one, <laughs> the most radical moves. That was the attraction. And then, yeah, I ended up going to Antarctica with them in 2012, a few years later. Wow. And and that's when you participated in the campaign that was one of the most successful Sea Shepherd campaigns. How, how did that happen? Yeah, so it's all to do with the Japanese whaling fleet heading down to the Southern Ocean Sanctuary to take minke whales, which they, I mean, it's very controversial because they have a scientific permit, but they're not really collecting scientific data. It's very contentious. Mm. And Sea Shepherd are patrolling and intervening. And that was actually the last Sea Shepherd campaign to Antarctica because of politics and a lot of things have changed within the International Whaling Commission. So at that time, it was quite sort of high profile in the press. And we'd Sea Shepherd had got a new new boat. So I was on the new boat, Sam Seilman, which was a former Japanese research vessel kind of ironic and then we had the other two boats and our mission was to to find the fleet and to do all we could to stop them catching and killing whales because of bad weather and because there was an injunction against sea shepherd those two reasons meant that the season was cut really short so the less time that they have in antarctica then the less time they have to hunt so that's a good thing and because of our presence yeah they only managed to get a hundred so whales and their quota being for 900 so it wasn't zero and the campaign was zero tolerance but it was still a pretty successful campaign and yeah like I said things have changed since then they haven't been down they're still hunting whales but in their own waters so yeah and what's the day in the life of a sea shepherd's crew member yeah so for me I was working in the galley I was cooking which I really loved I got to be that person who made everyone smile. They, hmm. I would just ask people what was their favorite sweet treat or, you know, their favorite meal. And we'd just try and keep spirits high with food, basically. Kind mm. of what you do in uh, COVID lockdown as well, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so everyone ha- has got a role. And depending whether you're the captain, it's a lot of responsibility. Or you can be on deck or you can be an engineer. So... Yeah, there's a, a diverse bunch of roles and everyone just working together in order to make it all function and operate as smoothly as possible. Obviously, there's always going to be some drama. Food comes in handy to settle any sort of dodgy situations. I guess you get become an expert in vegan cooking as well because I saw a conference with Paul Watson a few years ago and he was sort of saying that everything's vegan on board and everything, there's no reason not to be. Did you sort of save some really cool recipes? Yeah, everything we made was vegan and from scratch. It was so educational. Uh, head cook Rafa was Italian-French, so she was amazing and she basically trained me. 
Yeah, I was baking the bread every day and we were making ravioli, like vegan ravioli from scratch. So many really cool yeah, recipes. And the, there is, Rafa has done a cookbook really? from their campaign. And I think one of my chocolate recipes is in there. So <laughs> That's brilliant. And what was the most memorable thing about your expedition to Antarctica? Oh, wow. I mean, it seems like a long time ago. It was eight years ago. Wow. I think it was really seeing the majesty of untouched and pristine water and land. I mean, we only we didn't go to the continent. We just saw icebergs. But they never got old. They never got boring. They were so unique and so incredible. And to just be that far away from civilization, you just feel like a drop in the ocean. But sometimes you've got that social kind of family aspect. So the other thing that was really memorable was the crew and the people I met on board. They're amazing. So, yeah, two things that I think are really important in life, just to appreciate nature and to appreciate your community and your family. That's lovely. That's really nice. And what skills did you develop there that you're using today after this experience? Well, I think the experience actually made me pivot in my approach to conservation. Because activism is very radical, and I guess it's quite emotional, and I didn't really have enough, I felt like I didn't have enough knowledge or scientific to back up what I was talking about. So after I came off the boat, I decided I wanted to look into educating myself properly and do a master's course. So actually that has made me go to the other end of the spectrum to really try and critically look at these issues from lots of different angles. Like personally and emotionally, of course, I know that it's bad and wrong to kill whales, but also I'd like to be able to understand that issue on a much deeper level because there's more things that interplaying you know mm. in that issue that's really interesting actually um and a ama- very brave actually to sort of completely pivot on your career and to start learning again yeah and I think coming from an activist background you don't have much credibility in the scientific <laughs> really world. yeah I have to keep it very under wraps <laughs> <laughs> but it makes it, it makes it interesting and for me Uh, Learning experientially is so important. I guess it's kind of like surfing. You can't really learn to surf by reading a book. You have to go in the water. So it really enabled me to connect to the issues and to, yeah, to really experience the threats on nature and ecosystems and species before then coming into a place of of reason and research, yeah, which takes a lot longer to, to kind of change Wow. And is it through your studies in sustainability that you actually managed to join the expedition? Ex-expedition. I don't know how you pronounce it, actually. Expedition, yeah. I had applied to go on ex-expedition a few years ago in about 2015, where they went to Ascension Island. And I think it was their first voyage to collect microplastic data in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So I couldn't go, unfortunately. And I reapplied for this year when they just relaunched the round the world voyage. So there was going to be 30 legs with 300 women and they had 10,000 applicants. And I was lucky enough to get on board for leg one, uh, which was going from Plymouth to the Azores. And for me, that was really 
professional, I guess, because I'd learned to surf in Cornwall and tennis in Cornwall, South Coast. And now I spend my summers in Portugal, so I'd be ending up in the Azores and coming back into the Portuguese waters. So it was great. That's amazing. So could we sort of focus on what X Expedition is exactly? Is it a non-profit or is it a scientific organisation? How does it work? Sure. It's a campaign. I guess it, there's a few different arms to it, really. There is a science arm to it where we're doing scientific research as citizen scientists. And there's about 12 research projects that we were collecting data for. And then there's also the community outreach and volunteering aspects. So it's really developed over the years. And this is their biggest campaign to basically give 10 volunteers this opportunity to go and explore and investigate microplastics in the ocean and really to go through the processes of analyzing it as well using really high-tech equipment, scientific equipment, and then also giving us the tools to go back into our communities and to share the word about what we found and how we can potentially tackle the problem that is huge, ginormous. Right, yeah. that's right. So basically the voyage is taking the boat to all the sort of massive plastic continents, is that correct? They've got a scientific name, the Gias or something like that. Gias, yeah. Gias, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like that, yeah. Yeah, so there's the five Gias, which are the accumulation zones of microplastic. It used to be called the, what was it, the garbage patch. Yes, but after there's been more scientific investigation, it's more like a plastic soup because rather than the bits of plastic being huge and clumped together, they're actually really, really tiny. And yeah, just all staying in one area because of the global currents. And so there's five gyres in the different oceans around the world was visiting, I think, three of the gyres, but they've already done scientific research on the other gyres. So, and there's already quite a lot of research going on in terms of the gyres. But what they wanted to do was a comparison study. So the first study of microplastic accumulation in the oceans was really 10 years ago. So now when they visit all of these places, again, they can do a comparison study to see whether that microplastic accumulation has decreased, has increased, has it moved to the different places, and we can have a lot more information with that comparison. Yeah. So what did you find out on your leg? So much. (laughs) Yeah, so much. I learned so much. When we were traveling across the Atlantic, we didn't actually find a high number of microplastics in the surface waters. We only sort of found 30 to 100 in each sample that we would take. However, we did find microplastics in every one of our samples. Mm -hmm. So this kind of the range and the spread of microplastics, it just made me realize that they're really everywhere. And as they are persistent and they stay in the marine environment and they're most likely ingested fish then sort of the the toxins are then absorbed into organic life this breakdown of plastic just continues and continues so yeah that was was quite worrying and I mean I had an idea and I I did know but I think just being there made such a difference Mm -hmm. yeah and you actually had all the tools also to analyze the different sort of plastics that were there and that you picked up and the microorganisms that were maybe attached to them. Could you explain a bit more about that sort of scientific analysis? Sure. We had a few cool toys. 
the first one was how we would collect the sea samples. So there were three studies. We were looking to collect data on the sediment, on the water column. But what I'll talk about now is just focused on the sea surface. So to collect water from the sea surface, we would use a manta trawl. So it's shaped like manta ray and it filters the surface waters into a little um, bag. And then we would take the bag out and collect the microplastics, count them out using a microscope. Because they're tiny bits of fragment, it's very hard to tell what polymer they are. But we had a machine which is called an FTIR machine and then rigged up to a computer. It will take a reading and be able to tell us what polymer that is. So that's quite good in terms of tracing back where to what type of plastic it is and where what industry it could come from potentially. So you can actually you can trace it back to an end. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, one industry uses the main type of polymer. It just gives it a little bit more. Well, microplastics are so anonymous, so it just gives us more to the story. That's the tricky part. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what was the majority of plastic? What industry was the majority of plastic from? I'm not sure, but I think it's HDPE. So that's anything that's a hard plastic, so like a leach bottle or something like that. Okay. Yeah, as the, the main plastic. But really, there was a range of different polymers. Wow. There wasn't really, yeah. Wow. The results are in two years. So maybe I can come back and talk about the four <laughs> Exactly, <results. laughs> exactly. And so basically, I guess, you know, a lot of us surfers are aware of how to sort of reduce plastic and everything. And that the, the point is to actually not use it in the first place. But what would be your tips to actually reduce plastic pollution? from a scientific point of view? (laughs) Wow. I mean, this has been a calling to me for a long time. So at the same time when I started protesting about whales and dolphins in Morocco, there was also a similar narrative where I started to clean plastic bottles off the beach. So this is, you know, mid-2000. And the idea and awareness about plastic pollution hadn't reached the range and breadth that it's at now so I've been thinking about it a lot for a long time (laughs) (laughs) I really think that there are lots of different approaches that need to be applied in different ways to different levels of the problem and so one of the things that I've learned at university is thinking about things in terms of a system and Mm -hmm. they call it system so that you're able to take a holistic view of the problem and in this sense we would call plastic pollution a wicked problem because we don't really know much about it the extent of it it's constantly changing it's different for instance in the UK to you know the issue in the Maldives so the way that we deal with it in one place is going to be a different tactic in another so the overarching kind of I'm not going to say solution but maybe way that we could approach it is through system thinking so that's becoming a lot more called upon in these sustainability issues and I'm really big on system thinking now mm. so learning about those aha moments where I was like oh okay we can get together we can do this it gave me hope <laughs> no that's really interesting and I guess the epitome of systems thinking which would be permaculture and I was wondering if you could sort of give us your experience on permaculture and how that sort of initiates you to system thinking. Sure. So 
I have done my permaculture design course and that was really eye-opening to me in terms of living systems and how all the aspects of a garden or if you're growing food, if you're trying to live sustainably, work together in harmony and you can really uh, use the aspects of your sun sector, you can recycle water and one of the big things is uh, zero waste, so you're really utilising all your resources and I guess that was before I had been introduced to systems thinking and now through my university course a lot of sustainability sort of innovation and strategies come from systems thinking to tackle the big problems the wicked problems that are like plastic pollution or climate change but in permaculture it's basically using systems design so that everything works in harmony and you are just utilizing all of your resources. So it's really small scale and living systems thinking, I would say. Okay, Okay, that's really interesting. And I guess that sort of brings me to the film that you were involved in. I'm sorry, it's a jump subjects, but uh, the film that you were involved in, which was Undercurrents. Now, could you tell us a bit more about this film? Sure. So after I went to Antarctica, I came back to the UK and I moved to Jersey. I needed somewhere quite small and safe by the sea to live and a couple of girls were researching female surfing in Jersey and they got a crew of us together and we did some preliminary interviews and it was just going to be about women surfing and quite a light-hearted take on that angle really but as it progressed some kind of more profound threads came out through the interviews especially with Arlene who was the European champion Uh, who's based in Jersey, and she's in her 50s now. So she was kind of going through this change of and kind of reassessing her connection to surfing. So it evolved really into the connection we have to surfing and our our mind as well when we're surfing. So the mindfulness connection to surfing. And it's all female-led, so it's the girls that have um, filmed it and edited it. It's, It's entirely female, and I think that's really important to share that voice because I mean when I was growing up surfing it was it was very masculine it's very patriarchal and things have changed so much so it's just really nice to be able to share that more feminine style of surfing. Mm. Yeah absolutely and what was really beautiful in the film is actually how surfing really provokes mindfulness and living in the moment and awareness and I just wondered if what your opinion was on that or if you had any sort of feedback. I've been researching it a little bit, actually, because I'm doing a retreat at the weekend and I'm doing, so it's a digital retreat, so (laughs) I'm trying to incorporate this notion of flow, so the anatomy of flow. So it really comes from this research that's been going on since the 70s that when we're poised between challenge and skill or risk, then we go into this kind of flow state and surfing is like this perfect opportunity to go into the flow state because we're not sure what's going to happen with the wave we have to be really intuitive we have to be completely present and it's all about being in this flow state and it's it's kind of just that point of bliss really once you're in there this yeah not quite ecstasy because you're still fully present so it explores that and I'm still exploring that so yeah it's one of those places that I'd like to go back to (laughs) (laughs) yes as soon as possible (laughs) And do you think that it was surfing that put you on this path 
of being a, an echo defender and echo warrior and research, uh, sustainability research student and all these different roles that you have? I think it is 100% down to surfing, changing my life. Well, maybe it was destiny that I got into surfing, but it enabled me to think differently. And a lot of what it's explored in the film is it allowed me to develop awareness of my feelings and it allowed me to develop awareness of my thoughts as well. So I was very prone to anxiety when I was starting out surfing because I'd just go off on my own and probably into some silly risky situations but I'm here to tell the tale so it was all <laughs> fine in the end as you know with surf injuries and um, yeah it kind of helps you build that resiliency and it's this amazing experiential learning that you no matter what happens you learn something when you go for a surf so it's like this little mini journey in one surf and also, again, like the permaculture, it was enabling me to experience and understand things a lot more of a complex way, like in system thinking. You have to be able to think about the conditions. You have to be able to think about the waves and the shape of the waves and also what your body is doing. So really, I think that surfers are systems thinkers yeah. because it's ingrained in us. We're intuitive system thinkers because we're thinking about things on a lot, on many different levels and things are changing all the time. So we're very adaptive. So yeah, it's definitely 100% down to surfing. Oh, excellent. And do you think that that also sort of has put you on the, on the path to being a yoga teacher? I loved what you were saying yesterday about teaching yoga sort of <laughs> yeah so I became a surf coach in Nuki and then got my first job abroad teaching surfing in Morocco at Surf Morocco and there were some really amazing yoga teachers I'd done yoga a little bit and I started going every day and then I realized that yoga teachers were surfing in the morning when there was no wind when there was no crowd always getting the best waves coming back like having the best time and I was teaching beginners <laughs> working lot and I just thought I need to become a yoga teacher <laughs> or at least have the option to do both if the waves are bad and I can teach surfing yeah and that's taken you around the world but virtually with your yoga instruction yeah it's been this kind of perfect marriage and it's been an amazing journey and I mean I guess I kind of saw the growth the exponential growth of surf yoga retreats there was a few when I first started out and now there's hundreds, millions everywhere. So yeah, it's been amazing how a lot of people have realized and accepted that they go perfectly together because they both are interlinked, like you said, about building that awareness and you can work on your surfing whilst you're on the mat and you can, yeah, work, you know, they just complement each other yeah. so amazingly. Absolutely. Uh, that's really interesting. And I guess also there's something that there's a sort of, I don't know if you say that in, in French, it says there's sort of a red line that's lining your life, but your Echo Surf Yoga website, echoyogasurf.com, that's your website. Now, what I really liked was how you sort of view your website in terms of your, it's your home kind of thing. Do you elaborate on that? Sure. I guess since I started coaching and surfing I've been quite nomadic and I've been bouncing around the world and a few years ago when I got to New Zealand I thought it's about time to just make an online home so at least I could write down and keep a record of where I've been and maybe where I want to go and all that I've been learning so it's 
really this online home for all of my yeah travels and my learning and my teaching as well and it's starting to grow with a lot more content especially with the research so that I'm doing for my sustainability masters so just it's this perfect kind of home where the 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 trilogy lives really (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's fantastic and also mostly in the winter you're in the mountains teaching yoga and in the summer you're in surf retreats and you have a van could you tell us about your van yeah I have to be honest my dad's van I sort of I kick him out of it in the the summer he has my car I mean it's making the most of our resources it's pulling our resources he doesn't need the van necessarily and yeah I put on my I kid it out and then I take it over to Portugal. So I just love the freedom and also the security. Actually, it was when I was in New Zealand a few years ago, I was doing a retreat and um, I was participating in a retreat and we were looking at our core desired feelings and what we really wanted to kind of feel for the next couple of years rather than setting goals as such. And I said, I really wanted to feel secure and also free, but it's a little bit of a paradox, those two things, but I came back to the UK or I think I saw that one of my friends was advertising they were selling a van so I bought a van and then I was like oh this is it this is the freedom this is the security in one and then that van died and then yeah managed to commandeer my dad's and so it's kind of yeah now (laughs) but it's a really great lifestyle for now for sure I really I really love it and so what does it look like what does the van look like inside and out it's just a big white van a big white French van so it's a bit dented and it looks very inconspicuous which is great but inside it's very girly it's wooden clad uh, it's got like fairy lights everywhere and a little kitchen a very comfy mattress that was like the number one on my list of van kind of kits yeah (laughs) and space for lots of stuff Right. Excellent. That's really, really important. And how did you find going through Spain to Portugal, driving through? Was that okay in a van? Because we had a van once and we had a sort of heard lots of horror stories about people getting attacked on car parks and and things like that. Was it safe? Yeah, I haven't had any trouble. I literally haven't had no trouble. It's always only ever been positive experiences, but I didn't feel 100% comfortable staying in car parks in Spain. And so I've just move straight on if I feel like the heebie-jeebies that intuition of like "Mm, I'm not sure then I'll just keep driving so yeah and Andalusia before the winter and that was amazing so I think it just yeah depends so yeah Yeah. I haven't really wanted to explore Spain I want to go to Galicia (laughs) fantastic and I guess we're sort of getting to the end of this interview which has been a fascinating talk and I've learned so much about why you be the travels and see what you've discovered and what you've learned through your different voyages and I was just wondering what you're planning for the next months sure so everything has really come together in terms of my expeditions or the research that I did on x expedition and the research that I'm doing for my master's I've just submitted my proposal for my major project which is looking at the intersection between surfers surfer health and ocean health so I'm really excited to actually get to go out into the field and collect research on the perspectives of surfers and sort of looking at their ocean literacy so this is seven principles of, of really defining how much you know so it's this base level 
of knowledge about the ocean. And so one of my assumptions is that, yeah, surfers are going to know these seven principles. So that's what my part of my research is about. And then the other part of the research is also looking into microplastic accumulation in surf zones. So I have this novel methodology and I'll be going to surf breaks in Portugal to do some samples and see how many microplastics that I find. Hopefully, all being well, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, for the next few months, it's just getting that into place. But really just staying put and staying staying grounded for now until things are a little bit safer out there. And yeah, we're given ahead for just being a good citizen and adhering to guidelines and <laughs> and making the most of being in one place and not being distracted. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I guess before we part, I have four questions I love to ask my guests. And it's sentences that you have to finish. So the first sentence is, I love. I love being in the sea I love being in nature but I think out of all of the natural habitat the ocean is my favorite I miss I miss being in the sea (laughs) (laughs) I miss the freedom of being able to go surfing in Portugal yeah 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 hopefully it'll be lifted soon I wish I wish for this time to really be a shift in humanity and that we move forward with kind of respect for the planetary boundaries and the natural resources yeah and work towards shared goals of social goods and global sustainability Mm, lovely (laughs) and the last one is I want I want I want a dog (laughs) I have a neighbor's dog that I walk every day so I'm getting the practice in, but I would really like my own dog friend. Yeah, that's gorgeous. So I guess before we leave, a recap of how to get hold of you online, on social media and your website. Do you think you could recap it all for us? Sure. My website is www.ecoyogasurf.com and my yoga name is yogarama underscore UK. So I'm teaching yoga online at the moment. Hopefully... That will continue remotely, hopefully on a beach in France or Portugal somewhere. And yeah, reach out. Great, great. Well, we'll put all this down in the show notes, plus the film undercurrents that you're not being able to screen in public, but people can actually sort of view it online. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, the trailer's online and you can also rent it online. Okay, yeah, that's great then. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you, Natalie. Thank you ever so much for being my guest today. And um, it's been a really enlightening experience to to discuss all your projects and all your different sort of trades you've had all through your life and this wonderful sort of feeling of adventure. It's been brilliant speaking (laughs) to you and connecting with you. (laughs) Thank you, Amy, so much. And the podcast really great so it's been such an honor to be part of it well thank you very much well take care and catch a few waves once you can and uh, really stay safe <laughs> see you ciao wow i was blown away by natalie's story and the commitment and the joy that her adventurous lifestyle is bringing her you can join Natalie on her website, www.echoyogasurf.com, to find out more about her research and her personal story. Connect with Natalie at yogarama 
underscore UK on Instagram. And in any case, all the information mentioned in this podcast is in the show notes of your podcast app and on my website, theoceanriderspodcast.com, where you can also find links to the marvellous film Undercurrents that Natalie was involved in. The Ocean Riders podcast is a side hustle, and if you'd like to support my work, you can. First of all, subscribe to my podcast on your podcasting app, and you can also rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Second, you can help me pay for my hosting fees and my editor by getting some merch, Ocean Riders merch. In fact, I've created a totally secure e-commerce merch store at theoceanridersshop.com and I'm very excited to announce that I've got a new selection of limited edition t-shirts for sale. They're all organic and fair trade so by getting one of them you won't be directly contributing to the destruction of our natural resources. In fact you'll be doing the opposite and supporting fair trade practices. So check out the t-shirts online. Links to it are in the show notes. And also to support me, you can follow me on Instagram at the Ocean Riders Podcast, on Facebook at the Ocean Riders Podcast, and on Twitter at Imi Podcast. Thank you, Natalie, for being such an inspiring guest. And thank you guys for listening. Until next episode, take care, have fun and enjoy the waves. Ciao.